Hey, good morning. Great to be uh, with y'all back preaching here after a couple of weeks of uh, hiatus and uh, entering into this Holy Week. I'm really excited about this week and uh, in the life of our church and um, just uh, these next several months in the life of our church. You know, uh, before we read the passage from Psalm 24, uh, just a couple of notes. You know, I was talking to Shannon about this. When we would go to the pool with our kids, uh, we always had uh, two types of, of pool enterers in, in our family. Uh, one, some of our kids would go to the pool, they would go straight to the high dive, they would bounce, they would do like two flips and belly flop, you know, kind of like right into the deep end. And then some of our kids would kind of take a step into the pool and then they would get used to that around their ankles and they would take another step into the pool and get a little bit more used to it. And, you know, it would take them like, you know, 15 minutes to get in. If you think about the life of normalcy, you know, at Christ the King is kind of like a pool. Uh, we're kind of like the, we're kind of like wa- walking in on the stairs of normalcy a little bit. So you're going to notice a few changes, you know, kind of as we move through um, in, in the next, you know, several uh you know, a little while, and we'll keep communicating that to you um, as best we possibly can. Uh, that really begins next Sunday, where during this time, while you're just sitting here, uh, you know, you'll be able to remove your mask if you want to do that. We've also restored uh, coffee and water, ser- so beverage service is outside, and when I say outside, I mean like really, literally outside. It's out of doors uh, on this side of the building and that side of the building. So if you want coffee or water, uh, you can get that then. And uh, we'll be communicating, you know, more as we go. Um, but I'm hopeful and I'm excited. It's, it's fun to see new faces every week. Uh, it's fun to see, you know, people coming back. And it's just fun to be a part of the life of the church and to experience the Lord's grace together um, and so I just ask for continued uh, patience, and uh, you know, there's all kinds of uh, there's all kinds of room for misunderstanding, and there's all kinds of room for uh, all kinds of different things. But uh, the Lord will lead us, and His Spirit will be with us, and I'm grateful for that. So, uh, and one of the ways that the Lord leads us, and one of the ways that His Spirit is with us, is through His Word. And we're going to turn our attention to Psalm 24 this morning, which is a a psalm that is very often read and used and sung versions of it uh, for Palm Sunday because it speaks about the entry of the king into Jerusalem. Um, It's actually a psalm about the king of Israel entering into Jerusalem, but strangely enough, that king, David, who the psalm is attributed to, knows that he is not the great king. He knows that there's a better king than he is. And he writes about that king and points to that king. So follow along with me now as I read from Psalm 24, a psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. 
Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. The word of the Lord. Father, we do thank you that you are in fact the King of glory. Let us lift up our hearts today. Let us lift up our heads. Let us make room for you in our hearts and in our lives. Even maybe for some here this morning for the very first time. But for all of us in a renewed way. We ask that you would do that work through your spirit. In Jesus name. Amen. Music is a really powerful thing, isn't it? I mean, we just experienced that. You know, for, for a year now, we haven't actually been having that time of meditation, that time of offering meditation. And it's, you know, it's striking and it is meaningful, you know, when it is added back into the life of our church. There's almost nothing that moves us as human beings more than music. Um, when I was in college, I was exposed for the very first time to, a, I guess, a rather niche, you know, kind of musical genre, Russian Orthodox sacred music, really written between the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, before the Bolshevik Revolution, before uh, the, the Communist Revolution in, in Russia. And I love it because of its power and its weight. It's, you know, if you've ever seen the movie, the old movie, The Hunt for Red October, you know, it's kind of like that soundtrack. It's just weighty. It's ethereal. It's mysterious. And it always has this, you know, bass line written for superhuman basses that I've never actually met that can hit those low notes, right? And, um, and it's just powerful. And one of my favorite pieces in that genre is from a guy whose name is Pavel Chesnikov. Pavel Chesnikov uh, graduated from the Moscow Conservatory of Sacred Music in 1895, and he began writing music for the Russian Orthodox Church. In 1912, he wrote his most famous and really probably best and most weighty piece of music. It's a, a song uh, called Salvation is Created, uh, written for the Russian Orthodox Church. Unfortunately, Pavel Chesnikov never heard that song performed live. In 1917, there was the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia, the Communist Revolution. Russia became the Soviet Union. And Pavel Chesnikov, because he was one of the most well-trained and one of the best musicians at that time in all of Russia, was taken and was moved to the Moscow Conservatory, and he was given an assignment. His assignment was to write music of the same weight that he had been writing when he was writing for the church, but essentially to do a gigantic, you know, find and replace, if you've ever used that, you know, feature in Microsoft Word, go in there and every time you put the word God or Jesus or Father or Holy Spirit in your words, just yank those out and replace them with the people or with the state or with Mother Russia. So in other words, his job was to write music of the same weight, but to write it for the state, to write this music in celebration and pushing forward that the God of the people of the Soviet Union is no longer the God that they had worshipped when they were worshipping in the Russian Orthodox Church. And there's no surprise that this didn't work. 
That Pavel Chesnikov never wrote music of the same glory, of the same weightiness ever again because the state, uh, the, 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 the people, the, uh, the government, it can't bear the weight of that kind of music. There was this weighty beauty that he was trying to wade into, but it was marred with ugliness of removing the concept of God at all from an entire people. You know, from an entire people, officially. Beauty marred by ugliness. Really kind of seems a lot like the world that we live in. And that's why it's so striking to us, isn't it, when we experience beautiful things. I bet you over the past year, if you ever ran across something that just really moved you, maybe it moved you in a way that it hadn't before. A piece of music that just hit you in a way that you hadn't experienced before. Some art that you might have seen that just really took hold of your mind and your heart and your emotions. Maybe you had a meal and you were like, oh, I miss this kind of a meal, you know, um, And when you had those moments of just joy and beauty and wonder, it stands out. Why does it stand out so much? Why do those things strike us so much? Because so much of the rest of the world that we live in, so much of the rest of our experience is painful and is hard and is broken. And we experience these, these flashes of light and wonder kind of break into our normative experience of tension, broken relationships, sickness or loss or the debilitating effects of of age or infirmity. And it creates longing, right? What we, what we really experience is this longing for that beauty. You have a great meal, you know, and you, and you long for another one because it's not always the normative experience. The Bible recognizes that. I've said this before, and for me this is really true. One of the main reasons that I'm a follower of Jesus, one of the main reasons that I'm a Christian, is because the Bible does not lie to us. God does not lie. The Bible does not paint a Pollyanna picture of the world. The Bible tells stories that are horrible. The Bible tells us that the world is sinful, that the world is broken, that human beings are capable of the most horrible things, but that that is not the end of the story. That true beauty and true wonder is breaking into that darkness and is breaking into that, that, that um that brokenness, and it will be all repaired. And the one that breaks in is introduced to us in Psalm 24, the King of Glory. It's the message that we need to hear on this Palm Sunday. Now, Psalm 24, in its genre, as it stands in the Psalter, in the book of Psalms, is a triumphant psalm. Even though it's not specifically attributed to this event, most commentators believe that David wrote this psalm after he got into Jerusalem on the event when, they, when he had captured or recaptured the Ark of the Covenant uh, from the Philistines and, and brought it back to Jerusalem where it belongs. There's a story uh, in the Old Testament in Samuel about David bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem and he's singing and he's dancing and he's like, you know, just making a spectacle of himself and one of his wives kind of chides him for it, like, what are you doing? This is really undignified for the king to be acting this way and David says I will make a fool out of myself for the Lord's glory anytime and that is probably what that was the event that is attributed 
to this psalm. And what ties it all together is this theme of the great king, the king of glory. And so here's the wonderful thing about this psalm. David is the king of Israel. David is the one leading his people into Jerusalem triumphantly. But he knows he's not the king of glory. There's somebody else that he is pointing to. The king of Israel is writing about another king that is going to come after him. And it's the great king, the king of glory, who is the Lord. It's a wonderful psalm. So who is this king of glory? Well, we see three things in Psalm 24. that The king of glory is the creator king. The king of glory is the holy king. And the king of glory is the triumphant king. So first, the king of glory is the creator king. As a human being... We're really all wanting to find some purpose in our lives. A purposeless life is a very, very, very difficult life. You see it in people uh, who, who somehow lose that sense or lack of purpose in their life. So human beings are going to go looking for purpose somewhere because if we don't have it, it leads us into despair. And we, we try to find it in a lot of places, right? And, and, and some of it is good, but if we put all of the weight of our purpose on any of these things, it's going to break us. If we put all of our purpose on our job, that's going to break us because our job could change or we could lose it. If we put all of our purpose on material things, that could break us because those things could be taken away from us. If we put all of our purpose in our beauty or in our you know, health or in our athletic ability, that could break us because that could go away at the blink of an eye. If we put all of our purpose in a relationship, that could break us because that relationship could become strained or broken. That's why ultimate purpose needs to be grounded in something unbreakable and unshakable. And that's why Psalm 24 sets us on the rock of the king of glory. The king of glory who is the owner of all things. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and all those who dwell therein. In other words, God owns everything and everyone. There's nothing in all of creation that stands outside of the scope of God's ownership. Now, this might be something that we confess, and this would have been something that the people in Israel would have confessed, but we and they tend to live very differently from this. We tend to shrink God's ownership to something that we can kind of understand, that we can sort of make manageable. So the people of Israel might say that the earth is the Lord's, but what they really lived like was that Israel is the Lord's. Jerusalem is the Lord's and all of those other people out there we don't care about them at all you know whatever happens to them happens to them Israel belongs to the Lord but that is not what Psalm 24 says and I'm really convicted by that by the fact that all of the world and all of the people of the world belong to God because so often in my life I act as if God really belongs to me if it's all about just Jesus and me, or, or God belongs only to this church and this blinders here, or God belongs to our city or our state or our country. But the earth is the Lord and all of it. What if we really lived as if that was true? What if we not only confess, what if we concretize that? What if we woke up every morning and we said to ourselves, My work is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, all of it belongs to you God my studies when you walk into school my studies 
Whatever happens in this place belongs to you, O God, and the fullness thereof. My neighborhood belongs to you, God, and all of the people in it. Help me to have a vision for what that means and how I live in my neighborhood. My time is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. What if we really concretize that? What if we really lived by that? How is that actually true? Well, David tells us in verse 2, the king, of the, glory, the king of glory is the owner of all things because he's the creator of all things. He made everything, and so everything belongs to him. Think about that pastorally for just a second. Creation, you know, becomes, sometimes creation just becomes like a polemical thing, like a, an intellectual argument that you might have, you know, with, uh, you know, your next door neighbor um, or, or something like that. But let's think about this pastorally for a second. Because there are times in our lives when things get really dark for all of us. Maybe this past year, you have experienced some of that darkness in your life, maybe more than you've ever experienced before, maybe a period before that. If not, you'll, you're, you're, you're going to have some kind of a period like that after it. It's universal in the human experience. Where do you find rest in those times? Like, where, where can you land in those times? Well, it can't be in how you feel. Because, in, you know, in, you can be very deceptive and dishonest. And particularly when you're in periods of darkness, you can lie to yourself about, you know, lots of things that actually aren't really ultimately true. You can't find rest in what you do. That might be one of the reasons that you're in a dark place, you know, for, in, in the first place. The place that you can find some level of peace in those times, if it's not in how you feel, it's not in what you do, you can think about who you are. You can think about who you are. Created purposefully by God. Who founded all things upon the seas and established them upon the rivers. The king of glory is the creator king. And the fact that he created you means that you are endowed with great dignity. No matter how you feel in the moment, the fact is, is that you are a dignified creature of God who created you on purpose and for a purpose. It's a beautiful thing and a beautiful place to land in those really difficult times. The king of glory is the creator king. He's also the holy king. Verse 3 begins with a question. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Now, as I read Psalm 24, and I think about that event that I had just talked about, this is the way I kind of think about that. David, they've got the Ark of the Covenant. The Levites are carrying the Ark of the Covenant. You know, they've got the poles, you know, through the loops, and they're carrying it. David's out in front. He's dancing. He's singing. You know, he's not wearing all of the clothes that he would normally be wearing because it's too constraining for the celebration that he wants to have in front of the Lord. And then they get to the hill that leads up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a city on a hill. It can be seen from a distance. And they get to the place where they would begin ascending the hill up into Jerusalem, and David stops. Wait a minute. Who am I, and who are we, to be in the presence of God? Who are we to ascend this hill? Who are we to stand in the presence of the King of glory? And so he begins to describe the person that is eligible to stand in the presence of God. He who has clean hands. 
the actions of those in the presence of God are pure. They have done no wrong. They have committed no violence. They have stolen nothing. Those in the presence of God are blameless in all of their behavior. Now David might be thinking about that and going, hmm, I've stolen things, particularly my friend's wife, uh, not at that point, but you know, I've killed lots of people. You know, he's, he's starting to wonder, right? Pure hearts, pure hearts. Not only are the outward actions of those in the presence of God pure, this, gets, this is where God gets to meddling, right? The motivations of our hearts are pure. Not only do you do the right thing, you do the right thing for the right reason. We often do the right thing because we know what the right thing to do in any given situation is because we're smart that way and we've been conditioned that way. But do we always do the right thing for the right reason? Not only are our actions correct, are the motivations of our hearts pure? This is starting to get a little bit ugly. Pure worship. In the words of the psalm, this person who stands in the presence of God does not lift up his soul to what is false. Now, how many times do I lift up my soul to what is false? How many times do I put my hope in anything that is not God himself? How much do I long for and dream for and even find escape in some kind of dream of something being different and better in my life, right? Lifting up my soul to something that is not God that I think is going to save me from some predicament that I'm in. And then finally, pure speech. This person who stands in the presence of God does not swear deceitfully. His or her yes is yes and his or her no is no. And even if somebody promises something that is ultimately going to bring them hurt, they fulfill that promise. Now such are the characteristics of one who is qualified to stand in the presence of God. That isn't me. I do not have clean hands. I haven't done everything right in my life. I don't have a pure heart. I, I know sometimes the right thing to do, but a lot of times I'll do what the right thing to do because it makes my life easier, right? And don't judge me. You do the same thing too. I'm, you know, I mean, we, 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 this is just how we live, you know, kind of our lives. I do take solace and refuge sometimes in escapist dreams. I bet you do too. I, and, and my speech is not always on point, 100% truthful, without equivocation, you know, without obfuscation, which is a hard word to say in a sermon. Um, it's not like that. Are your hands clean? Is your heart pure? Is your worship perfect? Is your speech pure? Mine neither. So now what? We're standing at the bottom of the hill and we're looking up at Jerusalem and we're saying, I know the qualifications of one who can go up there and I'm unqualified. So what happens now? Well, the king of glory comes. That's the greatest beauty of Psalm 24. The king of glory is also the triumphant king. You see, on Palm Sunday, there was another who stood at the base of the hill in Jerusalem. Had a bunch of people following him too. And it was a triumph. Looking up at Jerusalem. And not only were those people carrying the symbol of God's presence, which is the Ark of the Covenant. God himself was there 
in Jesus Christ, in the person of Jesus Christ. And let's think about Jesus standing at the base of the hill of Jerusalem. Clean hands. Our Lord Jesus perfectly obeyed his Father in heaven. He did not sin. A pure heart. The motives of our Lord were never selfish. He was walking into Jerusalem, not for his own glory, but for your salvation and for mine. He who does not lift up his soul to what is false. In the desert, Satan tempted Jesus and said, if you will just bow down to me, I will give you everything. And Jesus said, get away from me. Get away from me. You will not distract me from what my Father in heaven has sent me to do. He who does not swear deceitfully, Jesus came bearing the words of truth. Truly, truly, I say unto you were the words on his lips, and those words were true and authoritative. Jesus is the King of glory. Jesus and Jesus alone is the only one worthy of walking up that hill, standing in the very presence of God, and he alone is able to defeat our enemies. He's the triumphant king. He walks into Jerusalem to defeat our enemies and our greatest enemies that we are powerless against no matter what it is that we ever want to do are sin and death. We cannot defeat our sin on our own and death is coming for us all. But Jesus in going up into Jerusalem defeats both of those so that he throws our sin as far as the east is from the west and remembers it no more. And death has lost its sting and has turned into glory for those who trust in him. He does this through the cross. In Psalm 24, David and his followers with the Ark of the Covenant enter into Jerusalem. They set the Ark of the Covenant in its place and they're done. But Jesus, the king of, the, of glory, when he entered into Jerusalem, he was passing through. He entered in one gate and he exited a week later another gate and this gate led him to another hill and on this hill where he was not carrying the Ark of the Covenant, he was bearing the cross, he was crucified. He was crucified. He entered into Jerusalem triumphantly. He exited Jerusalem in shame, but only for an even greater triumph at his resurrection on Easter Day. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts, our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the King of glory. And what looked to be a humiliating defeat on Calvary turned into the greatest victory ever in human history on that very first Easter Sunday. Beauty had won. Victory had been achieved. When Pavel Chesnikov died uh, in the late 1940s, after World War II, and the Cold War was uh, getting colder or hotter, however it is that you want to you know, describe that, um, it looked like he and his music had been decisively defeated his pre-Soviet music. Once a composer of incomparably beautiful music celebrating Jesus Christ, his career had been one that was forced into celebrating a God that couldn't bear the weight of that beauty, the, the state. And at his funeral, he was remembered as a Soviet hero. 
The local governor celebrated how he had served the cause of the Soviet Union, how his music had reminded millions that, uh, that the, they were cared for you know, by the state. But at the end of his funeral, with all of the dignitaries of Moscow gathered around them, his two sons had assembled a choir. And his two sons, in great danger to themselves and in great danger to anybody who was actually singing, everybody knew what they were getting into, and to the absolute shock and the embarrassment of everybody that was sitting in the, uh, in the presence at this funeral, the music started and the song that that choir sang was their father's first beautiful song salvation is created the choir opens its voices and in that mysterious magnificent weighty russian sing salvation is created in the midst of the earth O oh god our god alleluia in other words salvation comes from god Not just from God in heaven, but the God of heaven coming to the earth. Salvation is from God. It is not from Marx. It is not from Lenin. It is not from Stalin. It is not the state. It is Jesus Christ, the King of glory, who ascended not only to Jerusalem, but to Calvary for your salvation and for mine. Alleluia. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for what you did. Thank you for coming not only to enter into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, but to exit that city the following Friday to go to the cross. We pray, Father, that we would lift up our heads as your word calls us to do and to receive you in our hearts, the King of glory. Amen.